good morning to everyone. In evangelicalism, we have Christianese. Do you know what Christianese is? It's whenever we talk about life in a Christian way. And with this notion of Christianese, there's also Christianese-type questions. One question that gets asked often is this question. What is, your, what is your favorite Bible verse? Or what is your life verse? Now, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I don't like this question. And there's two reasons for it. First, I try to like all of Scripture. I think it's important that we don't just read one book or one passage, that we engage with all of Scripture. And two, my life verse kind of varies from day to day. Amen? From week to week type thing. Depending upon what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and what's going on in my life, I might have a different favorite verse. However, if you force me to pick, what is your favorite Bible verse, if you absolutely compelled me to do so, then I, do, I, I would concede that I do have some favorite verses. Okay, So I'm not completely a critic. I do have a favorite verse or two. One of the verses, one of my favorite Bible verses, and one that has relevance for this morning's sermon is Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. Turn with me there. Many of you likely know this verse, so you might not even have to turn there. This is a very powerful verse. It's a verse that I reflect upon often. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reason why I I, I love this verse, the reason why this verse speaks so powerfully to me, and I reflect on it often, and the reason why I'm bringing it up this morning for this service, is this notion of the gospel being the power of God. We gather to not, we do not gather in a spirit of weakness. We do not gather as weak people. While we ourselves might be weak, we might be sick, we're sinful. Ultimately, we gather to uphold something strong, something firm, something to completely and absolutely base our lives upon. We believe that no matter what happens in this life, the gospel will be true. And the gospel is the means of God's power. The gospel is powerful. When the gospel gets a hold of someone's life, their life changes. Radically. My life is a testament to that. And I imagine that your life is too. The gospel is a power. It's a transformative power. It doesn't leave us weak and fearful, but certain. And I love this passage because it teaches us that. One of the things that brings me the greatest joy in life is to see the gospel take root in someone's life. To see someone living and going in this direction and then for their life to change and then for them to go this direction. What a testimony. And this morning, in this morning's sermon, we're going to see the power of the gospel. We're going to see that what, we are going to see what the gospel can do in the lives of Christians. Just how powerful is this gospel we will see this morning. So with that brief preface, turn with me to Philippians 1.7. 
we're going to see the power of the gospel in Paul's life. And once again, we're going to be using Paul as an example. We don't worship Paul, but the Bible teaches that Paul is given to us, given to the church, as an example. And the example that we will see from him this morning is the power of the gospel. How the gospel has changed him, and therefore how we should be changed. This is the last sermon in this brief mini-series on prayer as thanksgiving. Next week, we're going to explore prayer as supplication. But this week, we're finishing up prayer as thanksgiving. Read with me in 1.7, Philippians 1.7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn with you all, excuse me, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Two points for you, as we did last week, we'll do this week. I'll end each point with a point of application. Two points. First point, we are going to explore Paul's motive in thanksgiving. If you take notes, write that. Paul's motive in thanksgiving. What are the emotions? What are the attitudes? What are the feelings? What are the affections? that are giving rise to Paul giving thanks. Look in 1.3. We're still exploring this theme of thanksgiving. I thank my God, Paul says. Paul thanks God for the work that he is doing in the Philippians. And in verse 7 and 8, Paul tells us why he's giving thanks. What are the emotions and inclinations that are giving rise to him acting in this way? Starting in verse 7, Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. So first we notice this idea of feeling. Paul is an emotive being. Christianity is a religion that incorporates our emotions, how we feel. Emotions are very important. And we ought to be emotive. We ought to express passionate feelings. And Paul, his passion, his feeling, what he is, what is in his heart, what's going on in his heart, is what he says here. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Well, Paul, what, what do you mean by this? This is a difficult, this, quote, in verse 7, is a difficult word to understand. If I say to you, I love this or I love that, you'll ask, well, what? It's a, it's a demonstrative pronoun. It refers to something else. And the way we usually understand this is by context. And Paul here, I take it, that the this, the this way he's feeling, is a positive attitude. Verse 3, 1-3 mentions thankfulness. Paul's giving thanks to God. Verse 4, he's doing it with joy. Verse 5, he's thankful for the Philippians' participation in the gospel and then and then in six Paul is assured that God will complete the work of salvation in the Philippians and all of this is a positive attitude so whenever Paul says it is right for me to feel this way that this way is positive Paul has a thankful heart it is right for me to feel positively about you Philippians and then he gives us the reason why why, Paul? Why do you feel so positively about the Philippians? 
because I hold you in my heart. See that in 7? That phrase is giving us the reason for why he feels so positively about the Philippians. He has the Philippians in his heart. And we use this type of language today. This language is not difficult to understand. We ought to not interpret it literally, okay? Paul is not saying that he physically has the Philippians in his physical heart. That's not the, t- that's not the interpretation that we want to communicate this morning. Rather, Paul's talking about his love. We oftentimes talk about having people in our hearts. Oh, you've been on my heart recently. We use that language. I use that language. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul loves the Philippians. To have someone on your heart or in your heart is to think about them, is to care for them. The idea is that Paul loves the Philippians. Love is the motive that's giving rise to Paul's thankfulness. It's a deep passionate love. Paul loves the Philippians. Paul loves his neighbor. Essential for us as Christians. Continually, I'm going to impress upon you the two commandments that we ought to obey is we ought to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And that we ought to love our neighbor as ourself. Over and over again. That scripture is just an exposition of those two commandments. And here we see Paul loving his neighbor with a deep abiding Love. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 8. There's something in Paul. There's some power. There's some presence that's giving rise to this love. There's some deeper reality than just Paul. Verse 8. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here we go back to this notion of Paul's feeling. He yearns. This is a deep love. And this word yearns is a very strong word. One word that we might contrast yearn with is a word like sure. Sure is a very weak word. If you're a male and you propose to your girlfriend, the last thing that you want to hear her to say is, well, sure. That's a very weak response. By the way, Catherine did not say that. Sure is a weak word. And Paul's avoiding weakness here. This, this love that he has for the, for the Philippians is deep. It's abiding. It's a yearning. And what supports this is this phrase, with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a powerful phrase. If, if you underline in your Bible, I'd underline that. It's hard to understand, but it's very powerful. The key to understanding it is un- seeking to understand the word of. What does of mean here? And this is what it means. Whenever Paul says that he has, the, he has towards the Philippians a yearning with the affection of Christ Jesus... This is what he means. You might, I might read the, the verse like this. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the love that Christ has for you, which is also at work in me for you. Let me say that again. This is how we should understand this phrase, affection of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all 
with the love that Christ has for you, which is also at work in me for you. What Paul is saying here is the love, the yearning, the feeling that he has towards the Philippians is the same love that Christ has for them. Paul is a conduit. Paul is a vessel. And he's a vessel for the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically his love, specifically his affection, specifically Jesus' Jesus's emotional response to the Philippians. Wow. Paul is expressing a love for the Philippians that Christ himself, the same love that Christ himself has. Paul is a vessel. And the love of God is flowing through Paul. To kind of understand this a little bit more, I think that we need to hone in on this phrase. Go to Colossians 1.28. Colossians is the next book. Just go one or two pages over. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, Christ, Christ, Paul and the apostles proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29 is key to understanding this notion of the affections of Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? Christ's. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So taking this verse, Colossians 1.29, what Paul is saying is that Paul toils, strives, yearns, to preach the gospel. And what is the energy source that Paul taps into to do this? The energy source is Christ. Paul does not say here, for this I toil, struggling with all my energy that powerfully works within me. No. Paul here is teaching us that he is so filled with the Spirit that the gospel has made such an impact in his life that Christ's energy is the energy that Paul is using to preach the gospel. That the union here is so intimate that the very energy Paul's using in preaching is Christ. Go back to Philippians 1.8. That's the idea here also in Philippians 1.8. This affection, this love... This yearning that Paul has for the Philippians is the very affection that Christ himself has for the Philippians. So going back to the main point, the main point in this point is we're investigating the motive behind Paul's thanksgiving. What's giving rise to it? The answer is this, love. Love. Love is giving rise to his thanksgiving. When you're thankful for someone you're led to thank God for that person. That's what Paul is doing. But behind that, underneath that, is the love of Christ. This affection of Christ Jesus. When Paul is loving the Philippians, it's actually Christ loving the Philippians. 
It's Christ's love flowing through Paul to them. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is completely by grace. Anything good that we do, any love, any energy that we use for Christ is His. It's Him. And this is the application for this point that I'd like to make. Paul speaks at length here in 7 and 8 about his feelings, about how he feels, about his emotions, about his affections. And when we become Christians, when we seek the gospel, what the gospel does is it takes root in the deepest part of our lives. In your heart of hearts, that's kind of how we talk about it. In your affections, in your emotions. It's very hard to have control over these things. It's very hard to have control over the deepest, most intimate parts of your heart. Oftentimes we can't really immediately change the way we feel. But in the gospel, God comes to us in our affections, in our emotions. And what God does is he changes those. He changes us, particularly with reference to other people. Oftentimes we don't like other people. Oftentimes it's very hard to love one another. But what the gospel does is the gospel takes root in that part of our lives. And it changes us. And I want you to see for Paul, this did not just happen overnight. Paul didn't always love Christians. Look at Philippians 3, 4. Paul here is giving an, an autobiography beginning in verse 4. He describes himself. We get a lot of information about Paul from what he says here. Though I, have, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Listen here. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, hold your finger there. Okay? Paul was a persecutor. The book of Acts tells us that this happened whenever Paul was referred to as Saul. So Paul was a persecutor. This is the, the exact opposite of an affection of Jesus Christ for these Christians. But then, go to again 1.8. At this point in Paul's life, he is yearning with the very love that Christ with the very love that Christ himself has for the Philippians. So how on earth did Paul get from Philippians 3:8 to Philippians 1:8? Excuse me, 3:6 to Philippians 1:8. How did he get there? The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. That's how he got there. That is our hope. In Christianity, we have the hope that the future doesn't have to be like the present or the past. That there is this notion of change. And when the gospel comes to you, when you hold on to it, when it is your bedrock, what happens is it transforms you. Your transformation might not be to the degree of Paul's. It could be. But nonetheless, it grips you and it changes you. So there is this notion of the possibility of change. 
we believe that we can change in the gospel from bad to good. There is this righteousness that God produces in us. When we have to hold on to that notion, oftentimes it's very hard to hold on to this idea of change, that you can change, but we have to hold on to that. We see that in Paul's life. But also, there is the responsibility of change. We have a responsibility to follow Paul's example. And the way we ought to follow that is to have a deep, abiding, powerful love for one another. For one another. This love, this affection of Christ Jesus that Paul is talking about is going towards others. This is what we need as a church. We need to model this notion of an affection of Christ Jesus for one another. Second point. First point was Paul's motive in thanksgiving. Second point is this, Paul's context in thanksgiving. What is the situation that Paul finds himself in when he says in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God? What's going on in his life? Where's he at? What's he doing? That's what we're going to investigate with this point. And we get, we get the answer to this question in 1.7. I've alluded to this in previous sermons. And you probably, as, as, as good Bible students, you know this, that the Philippians is a prison epistle. Paul is in prison. In verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then go to one thirteen. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and, all, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul is imprisoned. And in verse 7, for imprisonment, some translations say in bonds or in chains. And the idea that, that those translations communicate that Paul is actually shackled to the floor. Now, I don't, I don't think that we can get that from here. I think the ESV is a better translation. I think it's generally speaking of Paul as in prison. I don't know that it's so specific that he's in chains. He might be. But the point is, is that Paul is not in a good situation. He is in prison. And why is he in prison? What got him to that point? Well, it's the gospel. For Paul, the gospel was everything. For Paul, the gospel was worth losing his life for. Ultimately, Paul sealed this testimony when he was beheaded. But that's how valuable the gospel was to Paul. The gospel was everything. And he was in prison for that. Specifically, at the end of verse 7, it says that he was in prison in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here Paul gives us a bit more specificity to why he's in prison. He defended and confirmed the gospel. Now this notion of defense, the Greek word behind here is apologia. Apologia. That's, what, that's the Greek word where we get our word apologetics from. To engage in apologetics, Christian apologetics, is to defend the gospel. That's what Paul did here. Paul removed intellectual obstacles so that people could obey. But Paul also confirmed the gospel. Defense is to defend something. Confirm is to advance or establish something. 
offense and defense type idea. And to confirm is to validate, to establish. And the way that Paul saw himself establishing the gospel was by being imprisoned. His imprisonment was validation that he was preaching the gospel. It was through his suffering that the gospel was confirmed to the world. Now, to, to kind of better understand, so we, we, we have the, the situation that Paul's in. Okay, that's, he's imprisoned. He might be in chains. He might not be. He's imprisoned for the gospel, for Christ, defending it and confirming it. But I want us to see here how Paul understands his imprisonment. Look in verse 7, right before the word both. In the ESV, there's grace and then a comma. Verse 7, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, how should we understand this word grace? I think there's two ways to understand it. The first way is just a general saving grace. What Paul would be saying here is that the Philippians and himself have been saved by grace. They've been given grace, and they share in that together. I don't think that's specific enough. I think what Paul is referring to here, listen to me very clearly, is Paul is saying that his imprisonment is a blessing. That his imprisonment itself is the grace. Wow. Go to 129. To back this idea up, go to 129, Philippians 129. I used this verse last week. It says, For it has been granted to you, here's Paul talking to the Philippians, it has been granted to the Philippians that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There are two gifts that are given here. Last week we detailed this notion of belief, that belief itself is a gift. Belief is granted. I'm not going to focus on that gift. I'm going to focus on the second gift. Paul says here to the Philippians that the first gift is belief and the second gift is to suffer for his sake. Suffering is a gift to the Philippians. And if you look at this verb, granted to, the in Greek... The noun form of that verb is grace. In Greek, whenever you turn grace, the noun, into a verb, what you get is this verb granted to you. Another way you could translate verse 29. For it has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So based upon verse 29... I think it's best for us to take 1-7, the reference to grace, as Paul's understanding of his imprisonment. Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us that his imprisonment is a grace. It is a gift. It is a blessing that God has blessed Paul by bringing him to prison. What? What a thought. 
How are we to understand this? How on earth, Paul, can you think that being in prison is a gift? Well, what this truth highlights, there's, there's two things we could do this. One of my old professors said, well, you can just get a Sharpie and just scratch it out. We're not going to do that here. The other way is to seek to understand this. And what, what this teaches, okay, there's a general principle. In the gospel, what God does is he reorients our priorities. The things that we used to value, God changes. And we value these things now. And one element that the gospel teaches is that loss is gain. Loss is gain. Paul says in Philippians, where of which we'll get to soon, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what the Bible teaches. To further explore this point, go to 2 Corinthians 12, 7. How is it? Why is it? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. The reason why loss is gained in the Christian life is because God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is so great that it's worth losing everything for. Even Paul's own personal freedom. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is Paul's prayer. This is his heart, as we do. Lord, take it away. Lord, take this stuff away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But this is what God said to Paul. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Based upon that sermon from, from, from God, this is Paul's theological reflection. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Bible teaches that loss and suffering is the way of Christianity. Just like Christ, Christ laid his life down. Christ lost everything. He lost his own life. And the Bible says that no one is greater than the teacher. No one is greater than Christ. And if that's true of Christ, it's also true of us. And that this loss, excuse me, this life is a life of loss. This life is a life of suffering and difficulty and of trial. Over and over again, our lives prove that. But the power of the gospel, what God does with this suffering, what God did with Paul, is that he used that to show forth to Paul and to us his grace. What the prosperity gospel gets wrong is that they say that suffering and loss is a sign of God's displeasure. 
That if you, if you suffer, if you don't have money, if you're struggling, it's a sign that you don't have faith. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that for a Christian, for those who are in Christ, suffering is gain. Because in suffering, God manifests His grace to us. And there's nothing better in life than God's love and His grace. That's the gospel. The gospel is able to take the difficult things of life, the losses, and turn them into victories. Through the power of God, He turned the cross into the means of our salvation. And it's the same for us. Two points of application for you from this point. How should you respond to your difficult circumstances? Surely some of you are suffering. All of you, in one way or the other, suffer. First, this is my encouragement to you, that you need your perspective changed. Our natural way of thinking is to not see trials as means of blessing. What we often do is try to run from our problems. We try to do everything we can to avoid difficulty. But our perspective needs changing. We don't need to view the world through fleshly eyes, but through the eyes of the gospel. And what the gospel teaches is that we ought to have joy and thank God for the trials He brings in our lives. Because God is using those trials to bring about in us Christ. Don't run from your trials, don't avoid them. Jesus didn't. Embrace them and accept them as a means by which God will demonstrate his power in your life. Second, I've already alluded to this, but in your difficulty, give God thanks. Give God thanks. It's very easy to give God thanks when things are going well. Maybe you have food in the fridge, family's healthy, things are going well. And we need to thank God when things are going well. All the good things come from Him. But also we need to give God thanks in the difficulty. Just as Paul thanked God in the prison, so also you need to thank God through whatever you're going through. Fight to thank God. He is good. And His love endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for the gospel. We thank You for its power. We thank you for raising Jesus Christ from the dead and giving us hope. But Lord, often we struggle. And we see the bad over the good. Father, we pray that by the power of the gospel through your spirit, that you would change our perspectives. That you would lead us to see our lives in light of how Paul saw his life. Lord, we pray that we would see the trials as means of grace. And even in the difficulty, your love in your hand. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would produce in this church by the power of the gospel an affection of Christ Jesus. That you would transform us to love one another so deeply that it is itself the love of Christ flowing out of our lives. We confess that so often we don't do this. We confess that even in our own families, we're irritable and unloving. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would produce these great and mighty truths in our lives. 
and that you would lead us as individuals and us as a church to reflect properly the power of the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.